Proverbs 5, warning against adultery. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan. When your flesh and body are spent, you will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them, the cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. Hmm. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, I think. Let me pray for us. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, Guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we talk about this beautiful, powerful, um, sacred thing called sex. Um, keep the enemy from this room, uh, the lies, the shame uh, that we all uh, have and, and have experienced and feel. Uh, help us hear from you, uh, not, from, not from me. In your name, amen. All right, have a seat. Well, if you're a visitor, um, welcome to Midtown. You picked a wonderful Sunday to be here. Uh, we talked about money two weeks ago, right? And we talked about the power of our tongues and our words uh, last week. Now we're on to sex this week. So I, I told a friend I'm going to juggle chainsaws next week, and we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, but let me just say something before we get into this that really I hope normalizes this. Um, that when we talk about sex, everyone in here um, brings brokenness to the table, don't we? Like when I think about my own sex life and even my own sex, uh, sexual experiences prior to marriage, uh, I bring shame into this topic. I bring regret into this topic. There's loss here. There's hurt here. There's fear here. There's confusion here. There's desire here. 
Um, there's all sorts of things. And what I would love to just say is, is man, I, I really hope and pray um, that because um, for a lot of us, I would say, I think I can say for all of us, um, when it comes to sex, our experience of it is probably very broken in many ways um, by either what we have done or what has been done to us. And my hope is, is that we would be a community that would be a place of healing uh, in this area of our lives. And this would be a place where we talk very uh, openly and honestly with one another about that brokenness, as well as about what the Bible says uh, and steps into and how Jesus steps into this area of our lives. Uh, so I'm, I'm normalizing that right now. Uh, you're not alone uh, if you're in that experience or in that boat. And the wisdom literature, uh, you know, talking about this in church oftentimes has been seen as such a taboo topic, but the wisdom literature doesn't shy away from any of this stuff, right? It purposefully addresses the areas that our lives are impacted by most. And sex is an area that our lives is impacted greatly by. The Bible doesn't see these topics as taboo at all. Rather, a part of life and a part not just of our even in our marriages, but a part of community life. Like one of the things, you heard me say this about money, one of the things that shocked the Roman world about Christians when they came to faith was in the Roman world, Roman people were very tight with their money and very open with their sex. And Christians all of a sudden started living this very different way where they were very open with their money and free with it and began to treat sex very sacredly. It was a complete flip. And, and because Christians were living sexually and monetarily in different ways, it was stopping the Roman world. And they're saying, what has happened to you? Because we don't view money or sex like this. Sex is a beautiful thing, but like anything, like money, it has a healthy place in our lives. Or when sin gets a hold of it, that desire or that place in our lives can get out of order. Things like idols and addictions can develop. And so we need wisdom, don't we? We need wisdom in this area of sex, just like words, just like greed. It's why if you go look in Colossians 3, Paul lumps sexual immorality and greed in the same sentence. And he says they're both just forms of idolatry, right? They're forms of desire that has gone beyond God's intended place in our lives. It's a, it's a river outside of its banks, right? A river's a beautiful thing when it's within its banks. Come to my backyard. But when it rains hard and floods, it's a disastrous thing. So there's a little bit of a setup. A little, just one more word about this, because if you followed what Renee just read... It's a conversation between a father and a son, right? And it would be real easy to think that this is just a conversation for men, right? Because at the face value, what she just read, it sounds like women are bad and beware men, right? Uh, that would be a way too far, and I hope, hopefully you'll see that as we go through the text, reductionistic way of thinking about what we just read. But this book uh, and this passage in particular was written in a context. It was a conversation between a father and a son. A son that either was probably just married or was about to be married. Okay? 
And this could be, uh, if it helps you, you could even think of it in terms of a conversation between a mother and a daughter, a conversation between someone who's been there and someone who's not really been there. And he's having a conversation, not just about a physical act of sex, but he's having a conversation about his heart. He's having a conversation about his desire for intimacy. And he's having a conversation about how sex and sexuality are a large part of the expression for intimacy that we were made for and that we long for with the Lord. And so uh, as we step into this, uh, I'm going to ask you, remember we said the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Am I going to let the Lord be and fear of Him, Him be the authority in my life, in this area of my life, or in fear, am I going to be the Lord of this area of my life? Remember, the definition of a fool is what? Someone who's wise in their own eyes, is what Proverbs says. A fool is somebody who thinks that the way they see it is right, rather than, I'm going to fear the Lord and receive what he says about this, okay? So, four things. Wow, we've got a lot to talk about this morning. Sex is beautiful. This passage teaches that. That it's beautiful, but it needs boundaries. Second thing is this. When there's no boundaries in your sex life, it's a disaster. The third thing is, is, what does it look like to build some of these boundaries? How, how, how is he instructing? He's warning and instructing his son, I want you to build boundaries in this area of your life. And then the very end, he says something that has haunted me this whole week, uh, for your ways are in full view of the Lord. What does it mean that the Lord sees us? Okay? Everybody ready? All right, here we go. Sex is beautiful, but it needs boundaries. <laughs> Well, it gives us a boundary here. He's giving his son a boundary here. Uh, that if you're awake in this culture, uh, should really shock you uh, because our culture doesn't really celebrate this boundary anymore or hold it up the way that he's holding it up, and it's this. He's saying that sex outside of marriage, <coughs> sex outside of marriage is not only sin, but it, it's disastrous. That's the picture he's painting for his son. And nothing really... And our culture says that, does it? In fact, I would say, I would argue our culture rails against that at this point. That sex has little to no boundaries anymore. It's seen just as a, as a physical act between two people. I mean, it, we still do have some boundaries, like consent is a boundary, correct? Like That's something that regardless of what you believe, whether you believe what the Bible teaches or not, we still hold up consent between two people as a boundary. But who gets to set the boundaries? Why is that a boundary that we still celebrate, but we don't celebrate, or we don't hold up these other boundaries? And he's holding it up, and he's saying marriage, in many ways, it's the ultimate consensual sex, right? It's the ultimate picture of giving your whole self to another person. We live in an age where, where those boundaries are being removed, Right? There's no real consequences. We're in the age of Tinder. <laughs> Some of you know about. We're in the age of um, incredible pornography that's crippling uh, many men and women in our world. We're in the age of open relationships, and yet wisdom here is painting a very different picture. And I, I want to say this because he's saying th this is the boundary. It's, it's sex within marriage within the covenant of marriage, 
But who's painting this picture? Who's speaking here? Because he says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. And it's Solomon. Which if you know anything about Solomon, uh, this should be the like, huh, moment, right? Because without going into all of Solomon's background, let's just say he wasn't monogamous, right? He was utterly licentious in this area of his life. And this is a man who's speaking from the other side of a shipwrecked sexual life. A life of shame, a life of regret, a life that sexually went way beyond what God has designed. And he's saying this, I've been there and I've done this and this is my conclusion. This is my wisdom. This is my experience. It's a very different thing than just saying this is good wisdom. He's speaking from a place of his own life. And what he's doing is he's giving his son the talk, right? Everybody just had PTSD. <laughs> Some people have their parents here this morning, which we joked about. How awkward, right? Uh, maybe you had a great experience with your parents with the talk. Maybe you didn't have any talk at all. Um, I don't know. But this is what he's doing. Is, is He's sitting his son down, and I would say this. He's not just giving him one talk. He's starting an ongoing conversation with his son about this issue, which you'll hear me say a little bit more, but this isn't the only time he talks to his son just in Proverbs alone about this. This is a father speaking from his own experience and his own understanding and his own pain, and he's warning and directing someone that he loves about his future paths, and he's warning him, and he's directing him, and he's speaking to him because that's what love does, right? Love pursues, and we've sung it this morning. Love speaks, love warns, love guides. Love is vulnerable with our failures, with the places where we've made mistakes, things that we regret. And he's warning his son, and he's saying, I'm putting a, sex is beautiful, but I'm putting this boundary in the boundaries of marriage. And he's inviting him to consider the beauty of it. This passage alone, but if you were to go on a tour of the rest of the Bible, um, sex is something that is, is celebrated in Scripture, right? It's something that's seen as, as beautiful, that it's something that God's given to us uh, for not just our procreation, but for our pleasure, right? You can't read what we just read and not... You should have started to sweat a little bit, right? Wow, this is racy. It's given to us for our pleasure when it remains in the boundaries for which God has given it to us within the boundaries of the covenant of marriage. And the picture he's painting for his son, he's painting some warnings, but he's painting this picture. He's saying sex is to be celebrated. It is to be had, son, with the wife of your youth to the point of being intoxicated. Think about that. I want you to be so drunk on this, on the love that is expressing itself in sex in this covenant relationship between the two of you. Sex is beautiful. And why it's beautiful, it's, it, Scripture goes into more of it, it's, it's this. 
What, what's the purpose for with which sex was given to us? Why did God give it to us for more than procreation? Well, sex is more than just a physical act, right? It's the consummation, the supernatural, you could even say mystical, consummation of an emotional, spiritual union between two people. And that union, it's not a feeling. It's the same words that we have when God created Adam and Eve and Eve from Adam's rib. And after they were, what, naked and unashamed with one another, what was Adam's response? He says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Two become one. Sex is a physical act that is the expression of a, of a spiritual, emotional reality, which is that when you're married, two people, when you have sex, two people become one. And that sex is an expression of what is spiritually true. We're one now. There's no... You and me, it's us. And so that's why, it, because it's powerful, it's a, it's a powerful expression of that unity, of that oneness. It's a, it's a sacred, pure, powerful thing. When something is pure and when something is powerful and when something is sacred, just think about even other areas of your life. You, you protect that, right? You put boundaries around that because it is that. It matters to you. It's like in communion. Whoa, that'll change communion in a couple weeks, right? Sex couldn't, I say this about communion, that communion is a covenant renewal act. When you come and eat this bread and drink this cup, you're literally participating in renewing the covenant that is true about your union with Christ, right? It's an expression, a physical expression of a covenant relationship. And so sex is a covenant renewal act. It's part of why I fence the table when I say to people, hey, if you haven't received Christ as your Savior and your Lord, don't come eat this meal because this meal is an act representing something, <laughs> that you're one with Him, right? And so don't eat this meal if you're not wed to Christ by faith. The act, it actually represents and reinforces the spiritual truth. And sex is a covenant renewal act. It's an expression of a covenant, of a relationship. And when we do it, we renew our vows in that sense. It brings us into the reality the two have become one flesh. Sex is beautiful. But it's beautiful only when it has boundaries around it. Sex without boundaries is disastrous is the second thing that he's saying to us here. It'll ruin you in the end. There's a, there's a delayed sense to his conversation with his son. It may not seem like it's going to hurt you right now, but it'll ruin you in the end. When I was in seventh grade, I, um, everybody's like, wow, well, I'm really going to start sweating now. <laughs> this is a hard one to personally illustrate. Um, 
I was staying, spending the night at a buddy's house, and his parents had left for a breakfast, like a community breakfast, I think at our church. It was dead of winter, and um, we got up that morning. There's a foot of snow on the ground in Indiana, and he has a fireplace, and we decided we're going to build a fire in the fireplace because it's freezing in the house. And they hadn't had a fire in a few days, and he scooped out all the, you know, the ash and everything and put it in a box and then put it in the garage, and we built a fire, and we were watching MTV, I think, probably something inappropriate. And uh, about 30 minutes after that, I heard this, and I thought, oh, the garage door's coming open. Your, your, your parents must be here. And he went and opened the door, and the entire inside of the garage, the, every square inch of the garage was in flames. And it, like, backdrafted him, like, blew him out into the living room, like, no, no uh, eyebrows. And he's like, the whole the house is on fire. And I ran back uh, to his bedroom, like, you know, threw on my shorts and my shoes, and we, like, ran outside through the snow to a neighbor's house. And within five minutes, the house was gone. We burned the house to the ground. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Laugh it up, Brad. Yeah, it was a rental, by the way. Mm. You know where ashes belong? In a fireplace or in a metal bucket, not in a cardboard box. We put something uh, that was uh, highly flammable and something that wasn't meant to hold it, and it burned the house down. And I tell you that story to just illustrate the idea that um, he, what he's painting a picture is that. That it's with sex without boundaries, when, when it's in the wrong place, like those ashes were in the wrong place, it's deadly. And it might take some time. It took 30 minutes to burn that house down. It may take three years for your house to burn down sexually if it's outside the bounds. But it, it will happen. Well, listen to all the things that he says in there. He says, in the end, she's bitter gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. She gives no thought to the way of her life. Keep your path far from her. Your, your strangers will feast on your wealth. Your toil will enrich the house of another. Your flesh and your body will be spent. What's he saying? He's painting really powerful word images. And why? He's painting powerful images because he's saying that even though in her speech, which is as smooth as oil and, and the promises of the, of the wayward or the forbidden woman drip, drip honey, he's trying to paint powerful images to overtake the images that those words implant in our hearts, right? He's saying, I'm, I'm going to paint images of, of death and destruction so that, that those images can overtake the fantasy, the false payoff that, that those images that she's putting out to you uh, are, are promising you. This is very similar to when, I mean, what he's doing here is similar to when Jesus is teaching on adultery and lust in the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he say in that, you know, when he's teaching on in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not just teaching about the law, he's teaching about the heart behind the law and the spirit behind the law. And he says that committing adultery, it's not a physical act, but it's something that, that can and does occur and begin in the thought and the desire of the heart, right? That our hearts become unfaithful, our hearts, our minds, our eyes 
become wayward long before our bodies do. And he's saying it's not just a physical act. It's an issue of your heart. Whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in, her, in his heart, right? So a statement like that, he's, put, he's leveling the playing field. He's saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Anybody, any man or woman in this, in this room that says that they've never looked at somebody else without lust, I'll show you a self-deceived person. He's saying it begins in our hearts. And he tells the hearer, this is a very similar to what Solomon is telling his son here. Gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. Gouge out your eye. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Well, we could tease all that out for a while, but what he's saying is, is take action. That's how dangerous this is. That's how serious this is. That's how powerful this is. That's how beautiful this is. Take action. Lest your body be thrown into hell. And that word for hell that he uses there, it's less about, it can be used for our eternal reality, but it's more a word that was used for the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And he's basically saying, this will lead to that. Your life will turn into a living hell if you don't put boundaries around this area of your life. Your eyes, Jesus said, what you focus on, what you give your time and your attention to, your paths, he's warning him about his path. Keep your path far from her. Don't go to the door of her house. Of her house. Wow, I just developed a lisp right then. Your eyes, your paths, your rhythms. Do you put yourself in a position to be tempted? What we see in this passage, he's challenging him about her words, right? Her words drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because, like we said in the power of words, words get into our mind, right? She gives no thought to the way of her life. And because she gives no thought to it, we don't think about it. He's encouraging us and inviting us to think because wisdom thinks beyond the moment, thinks beyond the feeling, and thinks into the realities of what's happening, right? He says, don't stop, think. Don't go near her door. Why? Strangers will feast on your wealth. He's talking about economic ruin. He says that you will literally find yourself in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. He's talking about economic, social, public, personal ruin. And he's saying, son, it won't deliver. It'll eventually leave you in a place of discouragement and shame, and you will say this, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurn correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ears to my instructors. He's saying it won't deliver. That's why he said in Proverbs 4, guard your heart. Guard that wellspring because everything you do flows from it. So sex is beautiful, but it needs boundaries. Sex without boundaries, it's disastrous, is what he's saying.
to his son. So let's talk for a couple minutes <laughs> about building boundaries um, and drinking from your own well, okay? Because this isn't just a warning. Um, warning, right? There's a positive implication in a warning. When you're warning something and someone about something, you're also telling them to do something else. And we see him warning him, but also giving him direction of how to function sexually within the bounds that God has said, this is what's for your best, all right? So this may sound really simple, but it's not. In fact, I think it's, it's the overlooked part of this passage, and it's this. The first thing is this. How do you build boundaries as you talk about it? This whole passage is a conversation, right? Uh, that may, we may overlook that really quickly, but I'll tell you what. In my experience, personally, as well as my experience with people, Isolation, secret thoughts, um, shame, uh, and not being able to actually bring what I'm feeling, thinking, or experiencing out into a safe place to talk about it um, is where the enemy gets me alone and works best. And it's why pornography is so incredibly deadly, <laughs> right? Because it, it gets us alone. And it feeds that, um, that word that Jesus says, you know, and when he says, you look at a woman lustfully, it's, it's, it's that word epithemio that I've taught on many times. It's not a bad desire. It's an over-desire for something good, right? Porn feeds that epi-desire, that over-desire. Sex is beautiful. It's good, but it's meant to have a desire and an aim in the covenant of marriage. So the first thing I'd say is how we build boundaries is he's showing us right here. You talk about it. You create a place where this is a non-taboo conversation, and we are going to get honest about it. And I'll just say this. I'll speak to the guys in this room especially, but this is true for women too. Uh, if you don't have somebody that you're talking about, if you're not talking honestly with your wife, and if you're not especially talking honestly with some other men about this area of your life, it's deadly. You need to have conversations. It needs to be something we talk about and we talk about openly and honestly. Second, talk about it. Second thing is, is, I meditated on this for a while, where he begins, he says, for the lips of an adulterous woman or the forbidden woman drip honey, her speech is smoother than oil. I'd love for you to consider that the emotional often precedes the physical, that the verbal often precedes the physical. Many people believe that they won't actually ever have an affair with another person's spouse, and they probably won't. Maybe due to the fear or the shame or the consequences, some of the things that he says here can happen and will happen if sex gets outside of its boundary. But the lines of emotional infidelity are a lot harder to guard and a lot harder to maintain and a lot harder to identify. And remember, we don't, we don't do well when we think of sex as strictly physical. Because I grew up, I grew up in, a, in a, I don't think anybody ever said this to me, but I definitely grew up knowing sex was wrong outside of marriage, that that was the place that it was supposed to happen. But emotional and spiritual intimacy with a woman, um, go for it, right? If you become emotionally, uh, spiritually close uh, to a woman, 
Uh, go, go as deep as, as you like, but just don't have sex. I think that's crazy. That you can't argue that even from the Bible. That if I become emotionally and psychologically and spiritually close, that the physical thing is going to follow and should because that's the natural way God's created us. So I think he's warning his son here, hey, it's not just a physical thing. You've got to listen to those words and to that conversation and hold not just a physical boundary but an emotional boundary with the wife of your youth. So we talk about it. We listen to our emotional selves, not just kind of say, well, hey, I'm, I'm not acting on that physically. And then he goes into all sorts of things, and I don't have enough time to get into all these things. Thoughts, our paths, our discipline. He says there that I hated discipline. My heart spurned correction, and I would not obey my teachers. What he's talking about in many ways practically is working itself out in relationship and accountability with the Lord and with other people, which is, is I'm going to step out of hiding. I'm going to be willing to talk and change potentially dangerous patterns in my life. I'm going to submit to God's will for me in this area of my life. I'm going to build different liturgies, different disciplines in my life because this is what he's calling me to. And I'm even going to repent. That's what correction is. It's the invitation to say, man, I, I've not handled this well in my life. I'm going to step into repentance. And then repentance, I can be restored. I can be healed. I can, I can return to the joy of my salvation. I can, I can unite again with him. He's painting a picture of what it says in 2 Corinthians 10 when it says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to your confession of the gospel of Christ. He's saying, I want you to bring all of that stuff out of hiding, all of those thoughts, all of those paths, and I want you to bring them to me, like in Psalm 139. It says, search me and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, and lead me in a different path. Lead me in a different way. So we talk about it. We, we listen to our lips, to our emotional selves. We consider our thoughts, our paths, our disciplines, places where we need to be corrected, places where we need to submit and obey. But the greatest thing that he says here is that he says, drink from your own well. That's how you, how you maintain a, a healthy boundary and a healthy sex life is drink from your own well if you're married. I'll reread it. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow into the streets... Your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. My son, why be intoxicated with another man's wife? God has given us a place to satisfy and curate and explore the desire for sex. And the picture that he paints here, and if it didn't make you blush, then go read Song of Solomon, right? It isn't sterile, machine-like intercourse, it's passionate, intoxicating lovemaking in the covenant of marriage. And I'll just say this, I know there are all sorts of challenges um, to building a healthy sex life. And he's saying to his son, fight for it. Fight for it. I'm calling his son to drink to bring that thirst to the well that has been provided for you 
And there are all sorts of things uh, that are fighting against that. Um, Maybe it's shame for my past. We all bring baggage into our marriage relationships. Maybe it's self-image issues. Maybe it's sexual abuse issues. Maybe it's addictions that we have that have created sexual expectations that destroy our ability to actually enjoy sex in the way God's intended for us to enjoy it. We don't have time to get into all those things. I would say all those things fall into that category of we got to talk about this. We got to have safe places to gently and faithfully address those issues in our lives so that as we work through those, uh, the Lord can bring healing and bring restoration. And I want to say something to our single folks because I know everybody in here isn't married. Um, I wish there was more time. Uh, because he's saying, I want you to drink from that well, but what if I don't have a well? What if I desire that well? Well, Paul doesn't see singleness as a, as a curse or a disadvantage. In many ways, he celebrates it and honors it and holds it up. Um, and I was studying this week, and one guy, one commentator said this, I'm going to give you a dirty little secret, that most people are either unmarried or unhappily married. And that those who are happily married have come to grips with the reality that sexual intimacy between a man and a woman still can't reach the places of our souls that only Christ can. So sex is good, it's beautiful, but it's not ultimate. And we have made it ultimate in many ways in our culture, and therefore it's soured. And so um, let me just say to kind of close about this, the Lord sees. Man, I'm doing all right. Are we okay? Sorry. Maybe I'm the only one who's not okay. (laughs) It's beautiful. It needs boundaries. No boundaries disaster. How do we build some of those boundaries? For the Lord, for your ways are in full view of the Lord. Uh, When I read that sentence, uh, it haunted me all week because I thought, man, why do you end like that? Is that kind of like, you know, God sees everything, be terrified, right? Like on a, on a surface value or face value reading of that, um, your ways are in full view of the Lord. He examines all of your paths. Does that dig up in you a sense of fear? Like, do you believe that when the Lord sees you, he's, he's mildly disgusted with you in this area of your life? That he's disappointed in you? Is that, is that what, when he looks at you and you look back at him, is that what you see in his eyes? I want us to just think, to end this, how did Jesus treat and look at sexually broken people? Because the Bible is full of them, right? A prodigal son, a woman caught in adultery. We're all in the camp that Jeremiah 2.13 says that you've forsaken your first love and you've dug your own cistern or your own well wells that can't hold water. We've all been in that place. When you look at the eyes of Jesus, what, what do you see? What do his eyes say back to you? For your ways are in full view of the Lord. Would you dare to believe that when like the prodigal son returning home to his father. 
When you look into the eyes of Jesus, he's not ashamed of you. That he knows, um, as one of my mentors said, he knows, my Jesus knows what sin has done to me. And he sees you in the struggle. He sees you in all of the temptation. Um, He knows every thought and every word before it's on your tongue, and yet he says to you, you, you are the apple of my eye, that you are my portion, that you are my beloved, that in all of your failure and all of your, your prodigalness, maybe in this area of your life, and all your adulterous moments, and we all have them, he's saying, look into my eyes, and what are you going to see? You're going to see compassion for you. You're going to see gentleness. You're going to see love. You're going to see forgiveness. You're going to see an invitation to return to your soul's great lover. It's one of the great pictures in the prodigal robe, right? He's giving all these excuses for what he has done, and he says, robe, ring, feast. My son is home. Grace. I want you to eat and feast in my house. The Lord sees you. He loves you. And he's calling you to a place not of shame and not of regret, but a place of of repentance He's calling us to a place of restored intimacy. He's calling us to a place of redemption in this area of our lives. And I just invite you, uh, look into his eyes. (laughs) Because as we we come to him, because it's it's really true, I never never commit this sin in my life, the sin of adultery. I I never commit that sin without first, you know, you've heard it said you don't ever break commandments two through nine without breaking the first commandment, which is I've got something ahead of the Lord in my life, right? (laughs) He's saying, return to me, son. Return to me, daughter. The best husbands are the ones who never stop being a bride, right? That's why Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. He's saying, you have to be my bride. You have to see. He calls us, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He loved her when she was a broken messed up whore. And he says, I love you. Come on, I'm going to restore you. Come back to me. Let me love you, and I will teach you how to step into sex and intimacy in your relationships and in your marriages. All right, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for this word. It's a good word. Um, It's a challenging word. Uh, Lord, I know for me... um, just bumps so many places in my life with so much pain and so much regret um, and also so much joy. Uh, Lord, I pray that you make us a sexually healthy people. Um, Lord, I pray that we would see that it's beautiful that uh, we would do as the Father is mourning his son, that we would drink from the cisterns that you've provided and the running water. Uh, from the well that you've dug for us, Lord. And may that first and foremost 
start with our relationship with you, Lord. Um, Lord, you say that marriage is a mystery that is even about Christ and the church. And so, Lord, I pray that even through considering all of this, you draw us into deeper intimacy with you, Lord. Uh, and would you flesh that out in deeper intimacy uh, with our lives as, as it pertains to sex. Uh, we love you. We trust you. We submit to you right now. Um, thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy. Thank you uh, for your beloved gaze upon us. In your name, amen.